Welcome to the Christchurch London podcast. This is a talk from our central London service. To hear talks from each of our services, please visit christchurchlondon.org. Um, so before I invite Joel, I'm just going to read the passage for this morning. Um, and it's taken from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10, verses 1 to 24. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. He told them, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Go, I am sending you out like lambs among wolves. Do not take a purse or bag or sandals and do not greet anyone on the road. When you enter a house, first say, peace to this house. If someone who promotes peace is there, your peace will rest on them. If not, it will return to you. Stay there eating and drinking whatever they give you, for the worker deserves his wages. Do not move around from house to house. When you enter a town and are welcomed, eat what is offered to you. Heal the sick who are there and tell them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But when you enter a town and are not welcomed, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town we wipe from our feet as a warning to you. Yet be sure of this. The kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes but it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted to the heavens? No, you will go down to Hades. Whoever listens to you listens to me. Whoever rejects you rejects me. But whoever rejects me rejects him who sent me. The 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. He replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. At that time, Jesus, full of joy through the Holy Spirit, said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. All things have been committed to me by my Father, no one knows who the Son is except the Father, and no one knows who the Father is except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. 
Then he turned to his disciples and said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings wanted to see what you see, but did not see it, and to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. Please join me in welcoming Joel as he comes to speak to us this morning. Good morning. There's a lot of mics on this. I'm just going to move these. Sorry, one sec. <laughs> Uh, if I meet any of you at the conference next year and uh, you tell me the reason you're there is because Natalie bullied you in being there, I will completely understand. Though seriously, it is a brilliant, a brilliant conference, uh, genuinely one of the highlights of our year, so it'd be great to see as many of you there as possible. Um, for those of you who don't know me, I'm Joel. I lead our service uh, out in Mile End. Uh, it's great to be here. I, I genuinely love coming to central London. To uh, Now it's more often than not to preach. Uh, but to worship God in this city, the city that we love and that we're crying out for, is just a privilege to do that. So thank you for having me here. Um, and I just loved uh, the worship earlier. It was absolutely uh, beautiful. The song choice, the talent, the heart. And uh, as we were worshiping, I was um, just reflecting, reflecting, I guess, partly on what I've got to share today. But when we worship together, we are essentially singing the gospel. We're singing how the gospel has changed our hearts and our minds. And there would have been one moment in all of our lives, all of our uh, stories of faith, where we would have understood the gospel. Um, we would have understood the gospel for ourselves. We would have taken ownership of that and kind of allowed that story, the story of Jesus, to align with our story and transform our life. And that's a beautiful thing to be able to do that, to be able to sing uh, the gospel together. And you may have a memory, you may have a moment, you may have a person that you think of when you think about the first time uh, you came to faith. Uh, you may have been brought up in church a little bit like me and it's kind of a bit fuzzy the exact date or the exact time, but you know there was a moment where you came to faith. I really love uh, David Brooks' uh, story of coming to faith. He's a New York Times columnist and he says that he got on a train, he knew he was on a train and at one point he passed the border and he, he just doesn't remember he doesn't remember that moment where he passed this border from believing or from unbelief to belief, but he knew it happened, uh, but he couldn't really pinpoint exactly when, and he came to faith, I think, in his 50s. Some of you may relate to that. But there's just a powerful thing when we understand and know the gospel for the first time. And today we're going to look at a subject called evangelism. Uh, over uh, the last uh, 10 months, um, I've been, uh, I've gone from being a father of one to a father of three. We have twins. And uh, one of the things that that revealed in me is um, if you've lived in London for any stretch of time, you'll know that there's only two things that usually break the sort of social barrier between uh, Londoners, particularly on the tube, uh, and that is a baby or a dog. If you see either of those things on the tube, suddenly everybody realizes that they're not on their own, that other people exist, that it's okay to talk, that it's okay to smile, and the, kind of the presence of a dog or a baby kind of breaks down that barrier. Well, one of the things I've learned over the last 10 months is that that social barrier is removed tenfold in the presence of two babies. Now, for whatever reason, whenever I'm walking around with our twin children, especially with our three-year-old uh, three in tow, uh, this is interpreted to others as an invitation to either comment on how blessed we are or how tired we are or how young Dee looks to have had three children. That's never come my way, that comment, just to say. 
but it kind of brings this invitation. Again, it breaks down this barrier, which is, which is actually a really uh, beautiful thing. Actually, when I, um, I, was, I took the, th the three kids out yesterday, and um, again, you kind of, people just look at you. They, kind of, they just do. And it's kind of how I imagine being famous is like, like people look at you either like really kind of confused or like scared or anxious for me or something. Others just like their face brightens up. Anyway, that's how I imagine what it would be like to be famous. Uh, but one of these encounters over the last 10 months particularly sticks out for me. And we caught the attention of two women uh, who proceeded to make all the, the right noises when you're in the presence of babies. Uh, and we exchanged some, some small talk uh, before one of the ladies uh, said, just a minute, and got out a booklet and handed it to me. Being the pastor or a pastor in a Christian church, I understood the content very well. I was very familiar with it. I can't remember the exact title, but I'd be handed a Christian tract. I'd just been evangelized. Now, this isn't a comment on, on that or, or that uh, way or methodology of, of evangelism at all. We had a, it was a lovely interaction. We had a, a lovely conversation. But I do wonder whether I, any of you have had a similar experience to me. I wonder what comes to mind when you think of the word evangelism. And you may not be a follower of Jesus here today. And uh, you, may be, um, yeah, you may have experiences of people trying to share their faith with you. Maybe it's been helpful. Maybe it's been less so. But this word evangelism, it comes from this Greek word uh, for the gospel. It's the word euangelion, which I think I've probably spelled uh, or pronounced incorrectly. And, and it effectively means gospeling, sharing the good news, uh, or in our context, the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we know from this passage in Luke, uh, we know from the life of Jesus and the apostles and so many passages and stories throughout the New Testament that evangelism is an integral part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. But I think it's likely that many of us uh, are going through or have gone through uh, maybe what I would call an evangelism crisis. And it's not just that some of the old methods uh, aren't working anymore. It's not just that maybe our culture is more hostile or suspicious of people of faith. I think there's actually another more fundamental question that increasing amounts of followers of Jesus are asking. Not just how we evangelize, but should we? Is it right to share our faith with someone else who has a different set of beliefs or way of living with either the intention or the hope that they will come to believe the same thing and live in the same way? Now, Barna, a, a research organization in the States, have done some really interesting research around this. Um, when faced with this statement, so Barna asked this statement of, uh, of many people, of many followers of Jesus, they said, uh, this statement, it is wrong to share one's personal beliefs with, with someone of a different faith slash no faith in hopes that they will one day share the same. Barna found that 47% of millennial Christians believed that that was true, that it's wrong to share your faith, your personal faith with someone else. And that compares to 27% of Gen X and 19% of boomers. And you might be a millennial or younger, and you might be like, yeah, I get that, I agree with that. You might be a little bit older and think that's, that's so illuminating to me and uh, maybe get a bit of understanding about what younger generations are kind of faced with when it comes to sharing their faith. But it's also not just uh, followers of Jesus who are thinking in this way. Three out of five adults, um, uh, as in non-followers uh, of Jesus, non-Christians, believe that trying to convert someone to their own faith is an example of religious extremism. And so there is this kind of twin track happening at the same time. One is that younger generations, younger followers of Jesus, are increasingly uncomfortable with evangelism. 
And the other is that there is this kind of more hostile and suspicious culture to the claims of faith. Now, how has that happened? And I'm sure there are many different ways we could answer this question, but I want to just share a couple of characteristics that I think are helpful for us when we look at our culture and see what is going on and to try to understand in the language of the passage that we'll go on to look at, uh, to understand the harvest of our time, the harvest field that we've been sent to. And I don't want to spend the rest of our time looking at this passage to help us just think about evangelism and what uh, things and principles we need to think about when it comes to sharing the gospel today. So firstly, a couple of characteristics that I think is important for us to know, and you may be familiar familiar with uh, this already. The first one is this. The first characteristic is this. We are living in a post-Christian culture. Now, there are three ways that you can uh, understand how a culture or define how a culture relates to Christianity. Pre-Christian, where there is little or no knowledge of Jesus. Christian, or perhaps a better word is actually kind of Christianized. Uh, This would be cultures largely built upon and shaped by the Christian worldview. And then post-Christian, cultures that were Christianized and have now rejected Christianity as the dominant worldview. And if that sounds familiar... That's because this is the situation we find ourselves in. Much of society, much of the society that we are living in, uh, not only now reject the message of Jesus, but they actually define themselves against it. And so living in this culture, living in this post-Christian society, post-Christian world, uh, most people are going to have some experience of church, good or bad. Some will have, uh, they'll have some knowledge of Jesus, right or wrong. And they probably will have had some contact with some form of Christian evangelism, helpful or unhelpful. We are living in a post-Christian culture, and that comes with its challenges. Secondly, if the Christian story is no longer the prevailing worldview or narrative of our society, of our culture, what has replaced it? Well, many sociologists and philosophers use the phrase the age of authenticity to describe the moment that we're in and expressive individualism to describe the major outworking of this age. Here's how Alan Noble in his book Disruptive Witness describes it. Broadly speaking, our society embraces expressive individualism, a term that describes the modern idea that we gain meaning and justification in life through our individual identity and we establish our identity through self-expression. Charles Taylor writes that there arises in Western societies a generalized culture of authenticity or expressive individualism in which people are encouraged to find their own way, discover their own fulfillment, do their own thing. To put it maybe in more familiar or popular terms, live your truth, or you do you. They find its root in the age of authenticity and expressive individualism. And I actually think that's part of why many followers of Jesus, many particularly younger generations, don't like to evangelize today because they've actually absorbed some of that story. They've absorbed some of this narrative that I have my truth and it's Jesus, but I don't want to interfere with somebody else's. And so within this age of authenticity, the search for who we are It's not a truth that is found outside of ourselves. It's not something that Christianity or Buddhism or Islam or even science and atheism can tell us. Rather, the end point and ultimate aim is the discovery of your own individualized truth 
primarily through the expression of your own internal desires. The only truth that matters is whatever truth you decide matters. So you have, we have a generation of people growing up in a culture that says the only way to find purpose, true happiness, real freedom, and ultimate fulfillment is through an identity that is discovered from within, which nobody can deny or challenge. Your truth is my truth. Your truth is your truth, and my truth is my truth. And so to even say that truth is truth, that there is such a thing as objective truth that can't be personalized or customized, is to reject this uh, to reject this idea that your truth and my truth can exist simultaneously, even if they contradict each other, is to reject the foundations of not just what people believe to be true, but their whole identity. So what do we do? Where do we begin with evangelism when the harvest field we're called to either has this, this baggage with the Christian faith or even challenges the very notion of truth and how we understand who we are. And I want to pull out three values or principles from this passage in Luke to, to help us uh, think through how we might approach evangelism in our world today. And they are grace, peace, and courage. And uh, just to confuse things, I'm going to go through the passage backwards, because um, that's what we do in East London, just a bit, a bit different. So firstly, we're going to look at grace. I think Jesus suggests from this passage that what is of most importance is fully understanding and embodying the message that we bring before we bring the message. Here's what verse 17 to 20 says. The 72 returned with joy after they'd gone out and, and preached the gospel and seen these amazing things happen. It says, they say, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. Jesus replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In these verses, you get the power of what evangelism can do, that people can be healed and set free. But also this corrective from Jesus as to what should fuel our motivation and passion for evangelism. The 72 return, they've seen some incredible things happen through them, but what is it that fills them with joy? It's not that people were set free or healed or saved, which would have been very good things to celebrate. It's that the demons submit to them. Sure, they submit to us in your name, Jesus, but they submit to us. And why is that problematic? Well, the moment you start to celebrate or find joy in your own power or your own strength or gifts or way with words, you lose the very heart behind the message that you're bringing. Listen to Jesus' words in Matthew 7, and it will sound familiar in, in, in the context of the story in Luke. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. It is possible to do incredible things for God, but to not truly know him, to not truly know his heart. His heart for us isn't in the great works that we can do for him. 
His heart for us is that we are his children. We are his beloved. We're his handiwork. And Jesus tells his followers that the foundation of your joy is that your names are written in heaven. In ancient times, to have your name written down in the town scroll, uh, which is kind of like a census uh, for, for us or the equivalent of one, um, that was like a really big deal. Not everyone had their name in the town scroll. It meant that you were somebody. It meant that you had status. And that our names are written in the book of life and they're written in heaven is not because we're from a noble family or we have great wealth or that we've done anything to kind of get us there. It's because Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in the appearance of man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Your name is written in the book of life because Jesus died on the cross and rose again three days later. You are citizens of heaven, not because you've done great things for God, but because he's done great things for you. It is all grace. And therefore, grace is the message we carry. And I think it kind of takes the pressure off as well. You know, when we think about this, uh, this passage, we think, gosh, I, I couldn't do that. And when I say we've got to embody the message before we bring it, what I don't mean is we've got to kind of sort ourselves out and get everything right before we can talk about Jesus. What, what, what I mean is we've got to fully understand what the gospel actually is, that we're saved by grace, not by our own strength or by our own works. We're saved by him. It's all grace, and therefore grace is the message that we carry. And so when Jesus sends us out, it's got to flow from the fact that he has welcomed us in. As Philip Yancey famously said, there is nothing you can do to make God love you more. There is nothing you can do to make God love you less. So here's my point. I think the first step to evangelize in our post-Christian age of authenticity is to fully embrace Jesus' gospel of grace. That our identity is defined by who we are in him. And that can never be taken away because it's built upon a love that can never be achieved through our success or never taken away because of our failure. If we embrace the gospel, if we embrace the gospel, it changes everything. And I just, my kind of heart cries out, uh, and I want to say this, I don't want to say this in a patronizing way at all, but my heart cries out for those that are kind of absorbed in this narrative, absorbed in the, in the age of authenticity, where you're having to sort of define your identity by looking inside yourself. It's like, to me, that just seems exhausting and pretty terrifying. Because what it means is that any sense of identity falls on your own shoulders. It falls on your own strength. And if I were to look inside myself uh, to discover my own truth, I know, I think I know what I'd find. I find a whole lot of fear, find a bit of despair, some confusion. And I also know that I'm not the same person I was 10 years ago. So I'd need to be constantly reframing who I am in light of changing circumstances, uh, in change of age and seasons of life. I know what I'd find is an identity that is fragile. It would be like building my house upon the sand. But this is not what Jesus offers us. He offers us the opportunity to build a life on him, on an identity that cannot be taken away, that is defined by our uh, love uh, by him, uh, that we are children of God. Uh, and our identity, when we um, accept that identity as children of God, it's like building our life, building our house on the rock. 
So if we're to evangelize in this culture, I think we've got to fully understand grace, the gospel of grace. Now, secondly, peace. In verse 5, Jesus says this. When you enter a house, first say, peace to this house. If a man of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. If not, it will return to you. Now, a couple of things to note in this, these kind of instructions that Jesus gives before uh, the 72 go out. Firstly, Jesus is telling his disciples that some will be receptive to the gospel and some won't. He doesn't say if there isn't a person of peace, you need to kind of bash them around the head with your peace or take over the house and force them to be people of peace. He doesn't say that at all. Instead, he's inviting us to be on the lookout for people who are open, who are receptive. And for those that aren't, to kind of leave, leave them be. Now, I read some pretty or less than hopeful stats earlier. These are some more hopeful stats, which I'm sure you'd be pleased to hear. Um, half of non-Christians who uh, are in friendship with a follower of Jesus say they've had a conversation about their faith and what their Christian life means to them. So half of non-Christians know a Christian friend or colleague, and they've had a conversation with them. And over 75% of those conversations, faith conversations, the person who's not a Christian said that they felt comfortable talking about faith. And then 33% of them were actually open to exploring Jesus, uh, open to exploring more about who he is, which I just find that really encouraging. But Jesus here is he's giving us permission to understand that some will receive what you bring and others won't. But we won't know that until we kind of turn up and show up and have the conversation and bring the peace that we have. And Jesus actually experienced this himself. Not everyone accepted the message that he brought. And he actually, in this passage, he reads out some of the, or speaks out some of the names of the towns that, won't, that were, uh, weren't receptive to his gospel. He says, woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, and goes on to describe the implications for not accepting the gospel of Jesus. I think it's important to note with this, particularly with this part of the passage, uh, that the tone, or at least how I read this, this, this part of the passage, it's almost like Jesus is kind of cursing or, or, or kind of sending a curse to those towns, particularly because he goes on to talk about the consequences of what uh, rejecting the gospel looks like. Um, at least that's what it reads to me. But, but this word that we translate as woe uh, is actually not a cry of judgment. It's actually a cry of, of grief, of despair. Uh, the Greek word, uh, I won't pronounce it, it's, it, it's, uh, it's spelt the same way as we in French for yes. But I don't know what it would be in Greek. But it, it literally means an exclamation of grief. Like it's like, oh, Bethsaida, like why? It's Jesus mourning over these towns. He's not cursing them. He's mourning because he knows what the implications for them rejecting Jesus' message is. It's this visceral sound. And like these towns, Jesus is saying that some people that we interact with will reject the peace that we offer. And I think it's interesting that Jesus pulls out this characteristic, this characteristic of peace as foundational when speaking about the gospel. Like why, why peace? Why not truth or, or love even? And if, in, Paul actually emphasizes this further uh, in his uh, famous depiction of the armor of God in Ephesians 6. He says to have our feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. Again, why peace? Well, I think peace has both kind of cosmic consequences, but also deeply personal consequences when it comes to the gospel. Cosmic in the sense that Jesus has defeated sin and death, that the enemy has been defeated, the war is over, peace has come. 
But it also provides the means for us, me and you. Uh, it provides the means, Jesus' gospel, for us to have peace uh, with God, with ourselves and with other people. Through our own uh, rebellion and sin, uh, we can have peace with God and it loses the power over us because of his grace. And we can experience peace, knowing our sins are forgiven. And because the gospel of Jesus excludes nobody. In fact, Jesus later tells his disciples to proclaim the gospel to the ends of the earth. It has the power to break down every social barrier as we recognize the grace we have received. It's not built upon our identity or our nationality or ethnicity, whatever it might be, that we've received Jesus' gospel because of grace and that everyone is loved by God and everyone is made in his image. Because it's a gospel of grace, it's also a gospel of peace. We carry peace with us because of what we've received, and then we offer it to the world. And so part of evangelism will just be recognizing where is the Spirit of God working in someone's life? Where can we see peace? When we talk about our faith, what happens? What do we feel? What's the, what's the kind of atmosphere like in the room? Do we feel like this person's receptive just to hearing more? Are they a person of peace? But secondly, and I, don't, I can't speak for every era. But I think peace is a really good word to describe, I think, what the role of followers of Jesus can look like in our culture today. And Mark Sayers, who's an uh, Australian pastor and author, he's done some great work on this in his book, A Non-Anxious Presence. And in, in it, he defines that how in this age of anxiety that we're in, uh, where so many people are grappling, grappling with anxiety, that to be a person that carries what he calls a non-anxious presence, or I think you could use another word, peace, uh, you could rephrase it and say a presence of peace, is actually what our culture is crying out for. And I think he's right. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God, Jesus said. So when it comes to sharing our faith in this post-Christianized age of authenticity, you may not have all the answers to all the questions. You may not know what to say. And you may even have questions and doubts yourself, but I don't think our culture is primarily looking for answers to questions. I think our culture is looking for peace, for rest. Augustine famously said, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. I feel like our, our culture, our city is restless until it finds its rest in Jesus. And so I think our primary goal in evangelism is not just to give answers or even justifications for why followers of Jesus think or live in a certain way, important and helpful as they can be. I think our primary, primary role is to be people of peace and to offer that peace to a restless world. It's to be people of grace. People of peace, they listen. They understand. They see the person in front of them. They don't look at the argument. They, they look at the person. They don't come with an agenda or to get something from someone. They're not easily offended or angered. They don't boast. They're not proud because they know that the most important thing in their life is all because of grace. They've received it for free. May we be people of peace in this city. So, grace, peace, and finally, courage. Now we're at the start of the passage. Jesus, he encourages us. He says this, after this, after this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. He told them, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord, therefore, ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into the harvest field. Go, I'm sending you like lambs among wolves. Now notice here what Jesus asks us to pray for. 
He doesn't ask us to pray for a harvest. He actually makes a statement that the harvest is plentiful. Which, and I think that's, a, that's a, a timeless statement. I don't think that's just specific to that time he was speaking to. I think the harvest is plentiful today. But, but Jesus says, the workers are few and pray for workers. And then he says to the 72, go, as if they were the answer to their own prayers. Jesus says that the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Pray for more workers and go and be the workers. Now, why might the workers be few? I think part of the answer is in verse 3. Jesus says that I'm sending you out like lambs among wolves. Now, there is going to be a cost to your decision to go. There's going to be a cost to your decision to live a different way or to tell your story. It may not be easy. It's going to take some courage. Many people in our culture, I think, uh, and particularly as just a consequence of being in this post-Christian age, would have an experience or believe a wider narrative um, that the way the church has actually gone about its evangelism is actually the reverse. It's not the church being lambs amongst wolves. It's actually been the opposite of that. And there's actually been some genuine hurt as people have had the gospel shared to them and instead they felt like lambs being chased after by wolves. And so I think part of our role as followers of Jesus in the context that we find ourselves is to just is rebuild the reputation of what it means to be a follower of Jesus and emphasize the importance of grace and peace as well as truth in how we evangelize today. When we forget grace, when we forget peace, we can become self-righteous, seek dominance, power, or become judgmental. The late Tim Killer puts it brilliantly. We have to show the modern world that we've learned our lesson, that we have to learn the difference between bearing witness to the truth and present, pretending to possess the truth. And James Hunter, in his book, How to Change the World, he out- outlines three ways, three approaches that Christians have taken throughout history, all of them less than optimal, shall we say, First is be defensive against culture and seek to dominate it. Second is seek purity from culture and seek to withdraw from it entirely. And thirdly, to compromise with culture and be assimilated by it. And Hunter goes on to say that what he thinks is needed instead is to be a faithful presence. Not to withdraw from culture, but not to compromise or dominate it either. Now, people who are seeking to be a faithful presence, they seek to serve, they seek to show up while staying faithful to God. And it is likely that that is going to become harder and harder to do. We will increasingly feel like lambs amongst wolves. To live a different way is going to take courage, let alone sharing our faith with someone else. But to live a different way, when we do that, we have to realize that we don't do this on our own. Firstly, we have each other, we have the church. But also we have God's presence. We have the Holy Spirit with us. Which I find pretty encouraging. Jesus commissions his disciples at the end of uh, the uh, Gospel of Matthew. He says, go and make disciples of all nations. It's the famous Great Commission. And his final words are, I am with you always to the very end of the age. It's a promise we must hold on to in these times. Not just when we evangelize, but in every part of our life. And when we seek to be a faithful presence, some will respond with apathy, others maybe with hostility. But there are those who are hungry. There are those who are thirsty. They've tasted the narratives of secularism and it hasn't satisfied. 
The harvest is plentiful, Jesus said. Uh, some of you will know that I had a sabbatical over the summer, three months, uh, which was just incredible. Uh, and I decided to spend uh, my time or focus my time and en- energy reading and praying about the first value that I've spoken about today, grace. And I decided to use Philip Yancey's book, What's So Amazing About Grace, to guide me. And uh, I did it partly just because I wanted to fully absorb grace in my own life. Um, yeah. The last story he tells is of an opera singer called Jesse Norman, who in 1988 concluded uh, a concert that was put on for Nelson Mandela, who was still in prison uh, during apartheid. And the concert, I think it was his uh, birthday, uh, birthday celebration, I think. Uh, the concert had been big and loud, some of the most you know, famous rock and pop uh, musicians and bands. Uh, and uh, Norman was the last act. And there was no band, it was simply a cappella, and she sang Amazing Grace. Here's how Yancey describes that moment. A remarkable thing happens in Wembley Stadium that night. 70,000 raucous fans fall silent before the aria of grace. By the time Norman reaches the second verse, t'was grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. The soprano has the crowd in her hands. By the time she reaches the third verse, tis grace has brought me safe this far, and grace will lead me home. Several thousand fans are singing along, digging far back into nearly lost memories for words they heard long ago. Jessie Norman later confessed that she had no, no idea what power descended on Wembley Stadium that night. I think I know. The world thirsts for grace. When grace descends, the world falls silent before it. The harvest is plentiful, Jesus said. The same week I I read that story, finished this book about grace, um, someone from the Mile End Service sent me uh, a video. They'd been at All Points East, which is a festival in East London in Victoria Park, and uh, literally 10, 15 minutes up the road uh, from our Mile End venue. And it was a video of Stormzy who was headlining and thousands of people in our city singing along to his song, Blinded by Grace, Blinded by Your Grace. The words go like this. Lord, I've been broken. Although I'm not worthy, you fix me. I'm blinded by your grace. You came and saved me. And there's just something incredible when you see someone singing these songs and they pause and there's a great video actually of Stormzy doing the song in Glastonbury from 2019. I encourage you to watch it. And he just kind of looks out at the crowd. He's not singing. He kind of sings the first verse or so, but then he, there's a choir that sing along. He just sort of stops and he just watches as thousands and thousands of people my age and younger singing about the grace of God, like with their hands in the air. It's the most remarkable, almost like discombobulating experience when you know what the words they're speaking and yet we know what uh, is happening in our culture and, and the view of faith in the church. And there's this moment where he just bows to his knee, like he just bows down, almost like in reverence to God. He just can't believe this moment is happening where he's singing these words. And it just struck me as I read the story uh, of Wembley Stadium uh, back in 1988, I think it was, and literally the end of August in our city, in our context, just minutes from where I live, thousands of people who don't know Jesus singing about his grace. The harvest is plentiful, Jesus said. The harvest is plentiful in this city. And I think this city needs people who are determined to be people of peace, people of grace, and people of courage. It's not about dominance. It's not about being right. It's about embodying the message that Jesus is the Lord of lords. He's the King of kings. We're loved by him. Every person made in his image. That is what our city needs to hear. 
And I know I realize I haven't gone into sort of lots of practicalities on how we can evangelize, and they're really, really important. Uh, LICC have got some really good stuff on that if you're interested. But if you could, maybe my heart for us this morning is to maybe take a little bit of the pressure off that we feel when it comes to evangelism, the pressure off to have the answers to the questions, whether it's theological or lifestyle, whatever it might be, but just and fully embody grace, peace, and courage as we share how God has changed our lives. And we may not have all the answers. I love the passage in, uh, I think it's in Mark, where um, uh, the blind man is healed and he's, he stood before uh, the Jewish leaders and he says, I don't know who this person was. All I know is I'm blind. I was blind and now I can see. It's that kind of, that spirit, I think, that, that we need to have. We may not have all the answers to the questions, but we know who Jesus is. We know what he's done for us. We know the grace that we carry. Let's be people of peace in the city as we seek the renewal of this place that we love. I want the band come back up. Um, why don't you stand to your feet and I'll just pray for us. Jesus, you said that the harvest is plentiful. You said pray for workers and then you sent them out, Lord God. So God, I just want to pray or just say, Lord, that I believe that the harvest is plentiful in this city in this time. I believe that there are people who are searching desperately for an identity that is not fragile. For an identity that fully encompasses who they are. An identity that is built upon your love, that we're your children, that we're made in your image, God. Lord, we believe the harvest is plentiful. And God, we are here today, and maybe if you want to join me in this prayer, you might want to put your arms out. Lord, we're here today, and we're wanting to be your workers. We're wanting to go. We won't have all the answers. God, we don't, maybe we even have some doubts ourselves, God, but we ask, Lord, would you help us to embody the grace that you've given us? Would you help us to be people of peace? Would you help us to have courage? Holy Spirit, would you come? Lord, I just, want to, I just want to pray for the central service as well. I want to pray for almost this, this sort of spirit of praying for the workers to come. I want to pray for this service. I want to pray for growth, Lord Jesus. God, I was just struck during the worship again how uh, this service has been built upon people who are faithfully present, people who have stuck around, who have served both on the platform but also in the, in the quiet place. God, I just pray that you would honor that. You'd honor their prayers for this community, God. And Lord, that more workers would come. Lord, would you send the workers? Would we be the workers? Lord, the privilege of worshipping in the middle of this city, God. Lord, would we see more and more people come to know you through the people in this room? Holy Spirit, would you come? Thank you for your grace. Thank you that our names are written in heaven. Come, Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.